You're listening to the You Mentor Talk Show, where we invite a panel of experts each week to hear about their incredible journey and career paths. Today, we're chatting with Reza Ladak and Amin Al-Sadi. You know those brochures you see in waiting rooms of your doctor's office? Reza actually helps create those. Amina produces a daily show uh, in Seattle. As a producer, she does everything short of hosting to make the show happen every single day. This week's show is brought to you by the Moladina Commodities. As usual, I'm Fatima Al-Sayed, your talk show host. You can tune into the show every Saturday at 3. And remember, if you have any questions for the panelists, you can always leave them in the comments section. We're going to be starting with Riza today. Riza, how are you? Alhamdulillah, how are you? Good, doing well. So you work at an ad agency. Can you tell us exactly what you do? Oh, um, yeah. So I work at an ad agency um, and we specialize in um, the pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry. And basically, mm-hmm. I help manage campaigns, uh, marketing campaigns for my clients um, who develop drugs and chemotherapies and treatments in the oncology cancer space, as well as neurology. Um, and basically what I do is I work with my clients. They have a budget for the year for all of their marketing and advertising needs. And we sort of come up with the strategic and the tactical plans to roll everything out Um Everything from, like you mentioned earlier, the brochures that are placed inside mm-hmm. waiting rooms to the websites that doctors and that patients log on to, as well as apps that patients may use. Um, and even even the, the smaller things like just educating patients on um, the diseases that they may have, whether it's, you know, a late stage cancer, whether it's insomnia or um, Alzheimer's disease. Those are the different, um, I guess, aspects that I work in. So we help create and tailor all of those uh, messages and the marketing and advertising and just the information around the disease and around the treatments that are available for these patients. And what kind of a pharmaceutical company do you work with? Um, So my client is a Japanese pharmaceutical company Mm -hmm. and they they, um, develop uh, medications and therapies for patients who have late stage cancers. Um, And I specifically work in uh, late stage um, breast cancer. So it's... uh, Typically, the patient population that we we um, create materials for are women who are, are, are older, who are in the third or fourth line uh, stage of cancer towards the end of their life. And it's it's a really, really tough spot and tough place for them to be in. So we help create materials to help get through um, their their treatments and, and all of that. And what do the ads include? Like, what kind of things are you advertising for these patients? So it, it's different. Um, some of the things are specifically um, information. Lots of times when patients are diagnosed, um, they don't know where to go for information and they're trying to find more. And, the do- and we, we basically provide these things to the doctors to give their patients. So it's about the disease, um, sort of what to expect. And then if you're on certain types of treatments, um, the side effects of the treatments, how long these treatments take, what they, they, they can, you know, sort of uh, what they may experience while they're going through treatments, their infusion therapies, um, the types of questions they should be asking their doctor, the, um, the diets they should have, any, any lifestyle changes they need to make. So it's really informing them in a multitude of ways uh, about the disease, um, but also about the medications that they may be taking. Um, you know, a, as you may hear, chemotherapies are, you know, don't always necessarily have um, the, the best responses for people. You know, they're, they're, there's a lot of information about chemotherapies that don't people that don't have, you know, that, yeah. that don't know. So basically, it's really getting all of that out there to them 
and making sure all patients, as well as their doctors and their healthcare providers, their nurses, their family members, um, have all the information so they know to make the informed decisions, the correct decisions, and also once they've made a decision, what they can expect. And have have you seen that this has uh, changed or affected the lives of these people in any uh, way? Yes, yes. Actually, you know, it's really interesting um, when you work in a space like this because it's mm-hmm. such a niche market. You actually have more exposure to the doctors, to the patients themselves. There are so many advocacy organizations just out there trying to, you know, uh, get money for research and and put events out there so people know what's happening. Um, and through this, we've actually met uh, a lot of patients. Um, we've created campaigns where um, patients can can network with other patients and build a community. And we we've we've learned that every little bit of information for such a rare disease or a rare condition really helps the patients because they don't have much. And, um, you know, technology is changing, advancements are happening. So everything is constantly changing. So things that they may have done two, three, five years ago are very different now. So every little bit of information um, is really important to a lot of these patients. So we've realized that, um, you know, it's really changed lives as in the way of just, you know, Getting the word out there about different things, patients are so appreciative and doctors are so appreciative because things are always changing. Mm-hmm. Now, where do you fall in this spectrum of advertising? There's the people, there, there's the team that works on everything. There's the clients, there's the video developers, all of these people that work to create these ads, correct? Yes, correct. So I'm actually at the very center of all of it. So mm-hmm. I'm the liaison between the creative folks as well as the clients and the scientific folks. So basically at my agency, I manage an entire team of graphic designers, of writers, of um, medical writers, as well as, you know, their, their doctors, their PharmDs. Um, we have a video department, uh, a development team. And then I work with the clients in figuring out their needs. I work with their PR agencies. I work with their advocacy organizations, um, their advocacy department and the organizations that they're, they partner with. So I'm kind of at the, the focal point, making sure that the clients are getting what they need and, the, and that also my creative team is getting all the information they need to make sure that these uh, these projects can get out. And we sort of, you know, me and my, like I'm in the account services department. So me and my account services team, we tailor everything around the client's needs and their budget and also what they want to accomplish. You know, what's going on out there? What's, you know, we help facilitate all of the uh the information around what's happening in the market, what are the other drugs that are out there. And we help gather everything. We work with the clients and I specifically work with my creative team to help develop these pieces, whether it's, you know, coming up with, you know, ideas, we're doing brainstorms, we're, you know, doing research and, and figuring things out um, to help create all of these things. So, you know, within this whole thing, we, uh, we figure out whether we should be focusing on social media. We figure out we should be mm-hmm. uh, focusing on printed things or the internet or, you know, at trade shows or at patient events. And we kind of tailor an entire campaign for an entire year using all of these sort of um, different facets, you know, whether it's multimedia, social media, print media, kind of everything. And we work with production houses. We work with, um, you know, many different vendors to kind of get all of this together. So I'm my team is at the very center and we pull in all of these different uh, stakeholders. Do you need a certain degree to get to the position that you're at? Um, I mean, degree wise, uh, it, it's, you know, something in business management, marketing, um, it, for, for specifically my, my um, position in account services. But within an ad agency life, I mean, there's a lot of creative, creative things happening. A lot of people that are maybe, you know, uh, 
literature majors, majors or, or English majors that are good writers. And there's graphic designers, maybe people that went to art school, and then they kind of bring it in. But then the, you also kind of just get people who aren't really sure what they want to do. They may even be doctors, they may even be dentists or, um, or pharmacists, but they, they don't like the clinical setting anymore, but they want to apply their, their work and their knowledge and their experience in a creative way. So our agency really just staffs all types of people. Um, at the end of the day, you know, as long as you have a four-year degree and, and you're willing to, to have a go-getter attitude and, and, and multitask and you can multitask, like that's sort of what it, what it takes to, to get into the advertising sort of industry. So how did you find out about this job? Um, interestingly enough, I had gone to school um, originally thinking I wanted to become a doctor. I went in as pre-med at the University of the Sciences in Philadelphia. Um, I figured after a few years, it wasn't really for me, but I really liked the science. I didn't want to get rid of, you know, the, the like m- my focus in, in science and, and in medicine. And I felt I was I was more creative uh, to, in certain ways. So I found it a, a, a major that kind of blends the both. It was actually pharmaceutical business, um, which is really interesting. So I took a lot of science classes, your pharmacology, your anatomy and physiology, pharmacoeconomics, kind of very geared to the pharmaceutical industry. But I also took advertising 101, marketing 101. I took art classes and, and interface design and kind of all of this. And I was able to really blend my, my love for science and my passion for creativity and kind of put it all together. And coming out of college, I was pretty much geared for the advertising industry. Um, and, you know, you come across the, uh, the pharmaceutical space of this. And I didn't realize, I didn't know that there was an entire, entire section of advertising that are just targeted to pharmaceutical and biotech and, and healthcare sort of companies. And there's a whole world out there of, of just um, of uh, creative science happening. And it's a really, really cool world. So you really got to mix, you know, everything that you love in one job. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. You know, growing up in uh, the uh, you know uh, South Asian culture, you know, parents have that have that notion of of wanting their kids to become doctors or lawyers or dentists or pharmacists and kind of really being those those medical professionals as well, um, or really just any you know higher degree professional. And there are many of us who who may like art, who 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 are creative and don't necessarily have that outlet growing up and. This is a great way to kind of blend both. Um, and it's really interesting. There, there are some brilliant people that I work with that could have easily become, you know, cardiologists, but they, they really like using their creative side of their brain. And, and they use that for, for their work within the ad agency. And they're still able to, to pursue their, their, their passion as well as use their creativity. And does everyone that work with you have a science or a creative background? No, no. Um, I'll, uh, a lot of people don't. A lot of people just may have a business or or marketing background or a PR background. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about advertising is it's about learning on the go. Um, you know, it, the 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 application of of marketing and advertising kind of can transcend across any industry you're in, um, and you're kind of using the same basic knowledge and experience across all types of industries, whether it's consumer or pharmaceutical or sports or whatever it is but that you kind of take that time to learn and know the science behind it. So a lot of people that come into the industry are good at multitasking, are good at creative things. They may have not learned anything about science before, but this is their, their opportunity to, to learn and grow. And, and that's kind of you know what it is. is if, if you can learn about this as you're going along, you, you become better at it. And that, that's the beauty of, of this industry, that if I really wanted to, I can step out of the pharmaceutical industry, but be in advertising for, let's say, you know sports and a lot of the base is still there. So 
you don't necessarily have to have the science background to begin with, but you have to at least, you know, have a, 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 an idea to be able to grasp it and, and, and move forward with it. And if someone were to come and ask you for advice, like a new student who's trying to get into this uh, job industry, what would you tell them? Um, well, it all depends on what side they're trying to get into, whether it's mm -hmm. on the PR side or the account services side or the creative side. Um, you know, it, it's it's not to be sort of scared away by the science. Um, you know, if, if you have a, a creative passion and want to use it for something more and, and really meaningful and really to help people out and patients out, this is a great industry to get into. Um, you know, there all of these companies uh, offer internships. Um, whether it's in writing or in graphic design or in web development or app development or even on the production or the video side of things. Um, you know, there, there's so many avenues to get into to use your creativity and, and, and use it for a good outlet in, in helping others um, get through their treatments or get through their uh, diseases that, that they're having. So it, it's, a, it's, it's a slightly, you know, more rewarding way to, to, to be creative. Mm -hmm. Is it a very demanding job? It is. Yes. Yes. It's one of those one of those industries and ad advertising across the board. There's you know, they're saying, um, you know, everything is due yesterday. Um, <laughs> there's constantly things happening all the time. Clients have, you know, uh, big deadlines, fast deadlines. And in our industry specifically, everything has to be approved and go through the FDA. So and that's in the United States. So it becomes a very uh, structured process that you, you have to meet certain deadlines that the FDAs are, are you know, uh, sort of regulating. So a lot of things are happening at the same time. I mean, I'm currently working on maybe 15 or, 15 or 20 different projects at once and across the multitude, wow. whether it's digital, print, social media. And we have a large team to do this, but it's mm -hmm. one of those things where, you know, it's constantly on the go. Um, you know, you're... It, and to be honest, it's not it's not a typical nine to five. I, there's no such thing as nine to five in advertising. You know, sometimes you have 10 to four. Great. Sometimes you have eight to midnight. You know, like you're, you're really you're, sometimes you're working around the clock. Sometimes it, you're not. It all really depends on on your your I guess your peaks and valleys, so to speak, with, within with your clients. But it is it is very fun. Um, there are a lot of perks to it as well. Um, so, you know, it, it, it it's it's a balance and um, you know, some days are better than others, but it, it is, it is a lot of fun. Can you walk us through the whole process of how you start with the client giving you the ad that they want and then to actually executing the ad? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the beginning, it starts with their strategies. You know, what are their, their larger goals for the year or for the next three years or five years? And let's just say it's something as simple as we want doctors to be able to, um, prescribe or think about our chemotherapy and prescribe it to more patients that are fit this patient type. And we go, okay, what are the different ways we can do it? So one, you know, we, we think about the first, we start brainstorming in the different ways that we can get this information out there and the different ways that it'll directly impact, you know, uh, doctors writing this prescription or whatever it may be. And for example, if we choose a brochure and we find that there's a lack of information when a patient comes into the waiting room and, they, they don't know about this chemotherapy or the doctors just don't have that information. So we decide, okay, let's create a brochure. So first we, we sit in a room together with the client and with my creative team and we kind of brainstorm some ideas of what this could look like, what, what, what it could feel like, you know, um, the, the, the different messages and the, the different um, things that the clients want to get across. What are the important information points? What, what must go in the piece and what, you know, it's okay if it's not in there type of thing. And, um, so first we have those brainstorms and then we give it to my writing team. They take maybe a week or so to come up 
with the entire manuscript. So they basically write the entire brochure from cover to cover and everything in between, including all of the safety information. You know, if you if you listen to a pharmaceutical ad, you know, there's all the important safety information. There's all the side effects and all that's all that has to be weaved in and it has to be a, a full, full, transparent piece with all the information about the drug. And then we we review that with the client. We go, is this what you're trying to get across? So they take a few days. They talk to their medical folks. We talk to our medical folks and, you know, fine tune the messaging, make sure it's okay. They go, okay, now let's give it to the artists. And now the art directors start designing the brochure. They take the 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 branding of the, the drug or the branding of the client's, you know, actual company. And they weave it into this nice looking, beautiful piece that is attractive, but also still very informative. Um, and then we have to submit that for a medical, legal, and regulatory review. And this MLR team is um, a part of the client's team, but they're governed by the FDA. So they have their rules that they have to go by and they have to see the piece, say, okay, are we overstating something too much? Or are we, are, you know, are we saying something that's an embellishment or is this, you know, it, it, are the sources that are, you're using too old or, you know, they're, they're not most current, you know, and they kind of look through everything to make sure it is the most proper type of information for these patients you know that are going to be looking at it and then once they approve it we go ahead we make their changes and then we send it down to the fda for them to sort of give their stamp on it and then simultaneously it then goes into production into printing so basically this whole piece from the very first brainstorm to the day it's released into into the production team to to print it could take up to eight weeks sometimes longer depending on what the piece is um, and if there are lots of comments from the FDA, if we have to go back and forth with the FDA to make sure that it's okay. So it's quite extensive. So the reason the reason we do so many projects at once is because it takes eight weeks for one project to get approved. So we have to constantly be having work in the in sort of the pipeline and in the, in the stream of things. So as one gets approved, the next one's getting approved, and the next one's getting approved, and it's all kind of coming out together. That sounds so interesting. Yeah, it's, it's fun. <laughs> Okay, can you tell us a bit more about when you first got into the industry? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when I first came into the industry, I was working for a much smaller um, ad agency, um, and my clients were much of like the larger pharmaceutical firms you hear about, Pfizer or Merck, Bristol-Myers Squibb. So these are the larger um, pharmaceutical companies that that don't really have uh, a niche market. They 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 kind of uh, produce drugs for everything. You know, every sort of drug you and medical condition you can think of, Pfizer produces it, Mark Merck produces it, Bristol Myers Squibbs produces it. And these were my main clients up front. And I was working on on um, sort of medications that were your everyday run of the mill, whether it's painkillers or antidepressants and kind of things that you you hear about actually with issues that the pharmaceutical industry is having. You know, people are addicted to certain pain pills. People are addicted to antidepressants and it, it turned out a lot of the work that I was focusing on was just making sure these companies, my clients, met their prescription needs, you know, their numbers, mm -hmm. sell X amount of drugs by the end of the year, make our bottom line nice and big. And that's sort of where I was. A lot of my, my first couple of years in the industry was focused on and I didn't necessarily like it. I actually left the industry at that point and I mm -hmm. decided to go into nonprofit. I, I got into um, uh, an agency that worked with, uh, with children with learning and, and mental disorders. And I did marketing and, and advertising campaigns for them. And so I kind of stepped away from the industry, realizing that my, my conscience couldn't really necessarily 
uh, allow for for the the continuation of, of addiction to, to pills, basically, is what I kind of mm, realized like, at the end of the world. You know, you morally. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the work was fun and, and it was a lot of cool things we were doing. But the, at the end of the day, I, I felt like my my purpose wasn't necessarily being fulfilled. I was helping something that I didn't quite uh, agree with. Um, and that's where, you know, I started searching some more and I found the agency I currently work at. And, you know, when they specialize in uh, in rare diseases, uh, cancer medications, um, it's a it's a completely different ballgame in the uh, the pharmaceutical world. It, it's it's less about the bottom line and more about finding the right treatments for patients that don't have treatments or getting information okay. to patients that don't have the information. Um, it's a mm-hmm. whole other side of, of how the pharmaceutical industry works, where a lot of the money that comes out of these drugs goes right back into research and development rather than the bottom line. So it's, it's like a cycle of, you know, the, the better we do now, the more money can come into facilitating more treatments down the line because, you know, there's no cure for cancer yet. There, there's, you know, there, there are a lot of, a lot of things that are still unknown and, and still trying to be figured out by these pharmaceutical and biotech companies. So that's kind of, you know, where I found a good balance for myself where I can still use my creativity, my love for science, as well as really help um, people and an industry, you know, kind of grow and, and get more out of it. If you're just joining the show, you, we're on live with Rizala Duck, an account supervisor at an ad agency. And coming up, we'll be speaking to Amin Al Sadi, a producer of a daily news show in Seattle. Rizal, what's one thing you wish you knew before you got into the industry you're in? Um, one thing I wish somebody had told me was uh, something I'd stated before. There's no such thing as nine to five. Um, that's kind of just a pie in the sky dream for advertising agency kind of across the scope. Um, and it's very specific to New York. I, I feel um, that, you know, it, it's very demanding. It, it's, it's very go, go, go all the time. Um, and had I known that maybe I would have approached it differently. Maybe my first ad agency experience would have been a different agency, but at the end of the day, it, it, I do like it. I do like the rush. I do like the, the, the constant um, sort of stream of work, the multitasking. Um, and it is exciting. And if you're a person that can sort of vibe with that and work with that type of environment, you can really succeed and, and do well. Um, so that was, you know, it, it, had I been prepared for that, it was kind of like a, a punch in the gut right away thinking, okay, I got this nice job in New York City. It's going to be great. I'm going to have time for so many things. And I realized I spent a lot of my days at work my first two or three years. So it, it's sort of, you know, kind of part of the, uh, the growing process within the industry. And what's the whole industry really looking for? Like, what's the thing that will get you hired? Um, honestly, ha- being a go-getter, someone who is willing to learn on the fly, who can, can kind of take information and, and run with it. You know, uh, someone who, who knows how to research, someone else who knows how to kind of work on their own, but also really work as a team. I mean, these are very team-centric uh, types of, of, of work that we're doing, uh, the projects that we work on, and, and uh, the people that, that we deal with day in and day out are, are, are your teammates. You know, there, there isn't like a co-worker, so to speak. It's, it's like, you know, if anyone who plays sports, they understand the value of teamwork. And this is sort of translates almost identical in, into this space. Um, you know, you have to be able to sort of work with other people well, take in con- constructive criticism well, and also, you know, learn from those and, and, and someone who can learn from their mistakes, who can have a, a self-starter, so to, so to speak, attitude, um, a go-getter attitude can really mm-hmm. succeed um, a, a, in this industry. 
And what's one piece of advice you would give to high school students trying to choose their career right now? Um, in general, uh, don't be afraid to, to, to pursue your passions. Um, you know, people may have pressure from whether it's family or friends or, or just expectations from their communities or society to, to do certain things um, in a certain way. Um, everyone's path is different. Everyone has different things that they're good at. Um, and just pursue those and kind of go with your gut and, and what you feel that you know you're good at and that you can do well, you know, pursue that. I, I see a lot of people in my industry that kind of you know, fell into it much later in life because in the beginning they, 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 they pursued something that their, their society or their expectations from their family uh, sort of made them do. And, you know, they came into advertising much later on in life and they actually love it because they realized that they, they had actually this passion for creativity much earlier, but they never pursued it at an earlier stage. Um, yeah, better, better late than never is a good thing, but always kind of pursue from up front what you're, you're passionate about and you'll be surprised how, how far it can take you. Is it tough working in a place where you see all of these uh, people who are in late-stage cancer, who have such tough diseases? It, it gets to you, actually. And just recently, um, it's really interesting. Uh, we we're, I was on a call with an advocacy organization and that we work with, and we're creating this campaign for, for patients to, to really get, uh, share their voice and, and learn from others and, and talk about their, their condition and their treatments and their experience. And it turns out that one of them recently had passed away. Um, and she wasn't that old. She was only like 60 years old. Um, and had late stage cancer and she passed away and three years ago when this same story happened we were all down and we're like oh my god this is like this is heartbreaking and then just recently about you know two three weeks ago another patient had passed away and we felt bad and then we like shrugged it off and just kept going so it's really interesting it's kind of like you, you get desensitized to it but you also have to keep it top of mind because all the work that you really do is important and it's helping people but at the same time it's real right like you don't and luckily for this job of mine like I'm able to experience that that you know there's actually people behind this and it's not just a hypothetical patient or hypothetical set of people that are, are receiving the work that we're doing or that our clients are working with it's real and cancer is real and all of this is 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 not just a job anymore you know it, it takes it takes more um, and, and it's really interesting and it, it sometimes it gets you down, but you also have to, to know that the work that you're doing is going to help make things better in the future. You may not see immediate impact. You know, this person, person may not have benefited right away from the treatments that are currently out there, but the more you work at it, the more you try to work in the space, who knows what could happen in five, 10, 15 years down the line. So you kind of have to have that outlook. What about balancing this kind of work that you said is is very demanding with your own personal life? Does it become uh, hard? Yeah, it, it, at times it's a challenge. Um, but I, I think, you know, if if you're a person who can multitask and, and do all of this, you'll be able to find time for other things as well. And, and it's kind of just being able to balance that. There are its moments where you do have that free time and you can have a nice work, work life balance. Um, sometimes it's not there and it, it just... It becomes a part of the norm, I guess. Maybe it's, mm -hmm. it's a sad thing. I don't know. Maybe it shouldn't become part of the norm. Um, but that's, I think that's kind of what happens in New York or any really big city. Um, but, you know, you, you, kind of, you kind of go with it and you realize everyone else is going through it with you, you know, your coworkers. And if you build good relationships with your coworkers, you can end up having, you know, uh, good teams. And we look out for each other. You know, like my, my team would be like, 
oh, hey, you know, if I see somebody that's just, you know, just drained and, and down and out, like, hey, go take a couple of days off. Don't worry. Like, there's a whole team of us that can handle your work. Like, no big deal. So if you, if you yeah. build a good relationship with your team, you can get through those, those tough weeks and months of constant work and you can really, like, have each other's backs. And you do work in a place where you feel like you're giving so much. So it's it's sort of that balance of getting that fulfillment from your job and also having time to rest. Yes, exactly. exactly. <laughs> my, my family says I don't rest enough, but that, that's something <laughs> I got to work on. <laughs> okay. Do you have any last things you would like to say to the future generation of ad advertisers? Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because in the beginning, you know, sometimes you forget how much um, impact you have within advertising because mm-hmm. your message is being seen by everybody. The entire world is seeing, you know, depend, especially depending on the industry you're in. But like the, you don't know the impact that you may have on somebody, whether it's positive or negative. So, you know, always, always do things the right way. You know, we, we've seen, you know, we've come across teams and people that, that try to take shortcuts with certain things or clients, companies that take shortcuts with things. And, and it really has a lasting impact down the road. So, you know, if you do things the right way, your, your message does come across to everyone and it, it has a lasting impact. Um, so for people that are trying to get into the industry, um, you know, know, know that uh, your work that you do is, is, no, is not, not just within your teamwork circle. It really impacts a lot of people to sort of have that oversight and that outlook on how everything sort of works. Thank you so much, Reza, for your sharing your impactful career path with us. No, no, thank you for having me. Before we get to Amina, just a reminder about our Umoja Soccer Academy session. We currently only have spots left in New Jersey, so if you'd like to join, please reach out to us at info at umojaoutreach.org. Amina, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Now, you produce a daily one-hour news show. Can you tell us what goes into doing that? Yes. So um, when I tell people that I'm a producer, a lot of people think that I make either movies or music. (laughs) I actually don't do either. (laughs) Um, I make a news show. Um, And a colleague of mine recently tweeted out a description of what she thinks are some of the jobs that we do Mm -hmm. under the title of producer. And that is researcher, booker, editor, writer, reporter, story lead, project manager, marketer, event coordinator, director, sound designer, host, and I think most importantly, life coach. (laughs) So you're doing everything all at once. (laughs) Yes, yes. We come up with the ideas and then we just execute them. And when you come up with those ideas, what's the next step? Well, so, sorry, uh, when we we come up with an idea in a pitch meeting and it gets approved by um, the team, and then we go out and start, researching as much as possible. Uh, um, We start calling up people who are experts in the field or people who might know people who can speak to the topic. And um, we pre-interview them, have conversations. We take all that information and we uh, distill it down into a really focused conversation. Mm -hmm. And then we write a script, we write a lead-in, we think about all the other sound elements that might be needed, whether it's getting clips, to help tell the story better or finding some uh, musical element or other sound element. We uh, write the questions. Uh, We hand all that over to our host and we kind of coach them on what this conversation is going to look like, what this, um, 
what listeners are going to get out of it. And then the host will either take it and do it live uh, on the show. My show airs from noon to one in Seattle um, on an NPR affiliate. And um, so either it's live, in which case we have to book a um, coordinate all the elements that are required to get that person on the air, whether it's bring them into the studio, uh, book another remote studio, or um, you know, get them on the phone, or we're scheduling a taping, in which case we're editing the conversation after it happens. Um, and then, yeah, and then the conversation takes place. And then we take that, that show and we put it up on the web. We work on social media promotion, promotional information about that. And then we start all over again the next day. <laughs> so this is all in one day. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of people, a lot of times people will see the host and think, oh, wow, this host is amazing. The show is so great. But there are really so many people that go into creating that one show or that one segment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I think our, our host is very talented. I mean, I don't want to take anything away. No, from of course. <laughs> they um, they will often add a lot of the personality and feeling into the conversation. Once we hand over the conversation to them, they're the ones who really have to make it come to life. And so yeah. sometimes that means they're going off script a little bit and and following the direction of the guests that we've put in front of them. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they'll rewrite our script a little bit. But I always feel really good when my host just reads exactly what I wrote verbatim. Um, and how did you start in this career? What what sparked your interest? Well, I was always I always loved to write um, stories, and uh, I thought when I was in my teen years, I probably wanted to go into journalism. Um, and but I think the moment that really sparked it was when I was about sixteen years old or so. I was listening to a program on um, the station I work at now, and the KUOW. Mm -hmm. um, it's an NPR show, or actually, it's not an NPR show. It's came out of the station in Chicago, WBEZ, but it's called um, This American Life. And um, on this show, they were talking to a, um, they were telling the story of a Muslim family in I believe the New Jersey area who had um, a perfectly normal life before 9-11 and then after 9-11, their lives kind of changed. They experienced um, a lot of racism, Islamophobia, discrimination. Um, and listening to that story, I felt really moved by it and I related to it in so many ways. And I was also, this wasn't the kind of story I was hearing or seeing in the media. This isn't how Muslims were being talked about or portrayed. It was, uh, very humanizing and I'm, and as a Muslim, you know, I didn't need to have Muslims humanize for me, but <laughs> I was, I couldn't believe that on this kind of mainstream, um, platform we were hearing this story and i thought if people who work in this field have the power to to do that to bring these stories to a wider audience then that's that's what i want to be able to do too and it's interesting because at that time it was something that wasn't so common to hear those stories yeah absolutely now what else did you study in high in sorry in college or university that sort of helped you in this career a lot of yeah. people do take different uh, majors and minors. Yeah, well, I actually never studied journalism. I uh, studied English and psychology. Um, so that's what I got my bachelor's degree in. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people will 
they might study journalism, they might study economics, or maybe they're pre-med, or maybe they study history or political science or international studies. Um, I think it's really important while you're in university to um, kind of help yourself gain another area of expertise. And I really loved English um, because growing up, I, I, I always loved literature and I, I just love analyzing texts and ex explaining it and uh, kind of understanding the message behind a story that's more than just what is put in front of you. And then psychology, I've always been really interested in um, the human psyche and how we as human beings process the world around us. And I thought maybe I'd go into counseling um, instead of psychology. I mm -hmm. entered college in 2008, which is when the recession hit. And so even though journalism <laughs> the was newspaper like, oh, recession, exactly, exactly. In fact, um, I had wanted to intern at a newspaper in Seattle mm -hmm. and it closed before I was old enough to intern there. Um, so I saw the industry is maybe being a little difficult to get into, maybe not being that lucrative. And so I had a backup plan, which was counseling. Okay. Now, now in, in the field, field of, journalism, of journalism, there's a lot of, uh, it's weird because you may get into a job um, without having a degree and sometimes you have to have a degree. So what's the requirement nowadays? Yeah, I would say that most, um, most, of the major publications and uh, organizations are going to want a degree. I know some folks who have been able to, who were able to be really successful without a degree, but they kind of hit a wall at some point. Mm -hmm. um, as you start to advance, get closer to a management job, or if you wanna make more money, um, uh, bosses are really gonna wanna see a degree. And a lot of, Job require a lot of uh, jobs that are open require a degree um, even to get get an interview. Mm -hmm. Now I know the industry is talking about this a lot because a degree can be really prohibitive and um, or having a degree can be really prohibitive and the industry is really reckoning with how um, what a lack of diversity there is in newsrooms and how that really um, blocks us from telling the tr you know the widest range of stories and, and experiences and um and i don't just mean like ethnic diversity i mean like economic diversity is a huge mm -hmm. huge problem yeah, yeah. um and if you're only employing people who have a degree you're really um you're really not accessing a lot of people who could be incredible storytellers incredible journalists mm -hmm. they just don't have that formal education and when you're going into the field, do you have to get an internship right away or can you start working? Do you get paid right off the bat? Yeah, <laughs> it really, 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 really helps to have an internship. That's how I got into the field. Actually, my station offers a internship in high school and I applied and got, got an internship in high school at uh, my local NPR station. And um, that is actually how I have a job today because I, stay connected with those people. Um, I got formal training and experience before I even applied for the job, uh, the entry level job that I have now. Um, well, it's not entry level anymore, but it was entry level <laughs> when I got it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so an internship is huge. Um, I would say most people um, start out with some sort of internship, volunteer work, um, fellowships, th things like that. Um, and 
they a lot of them especially back in the day don't pay um mm -hmm. but that's another thing that people are trying to change because um it's really it's really hard to again get people who are not a certain demographic uh, if you don't offer some sort of pay, mm -hmm. um, especially so, in journalism, because they yeah. don't even like even the, the the news corporations aren't able to find their own funding. So absolutely, free work is a lot easier. Absolutely, absolutely. I think the industry has really relied on free work, um, <laughs> free labor for a really long time. Now, when you <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> Do you come into the career with your own personal experiences? Yeah, I definitely think so. And, um, you know, it's interesting being um, Muslim American. Like, on one hand, I started when I started out. Okay, so the reason I wanted to get into journalism was because of my own personal experiences, my own personal story. I didn't, with the exception of that one story, I didn't really see myself reflected in the news, and I felt like the way that Muslims are being written about and portrayed was so narrow and inaccurate. Um, but then once I was actually in the room and in the field, I was really worried about this new challenge, which is being kind of typecast or pigeonholed or accused of being biased because I'm pitching only stories about Muslims or, um, or immigrants or people from the Middle East. And especially as someone who is visible, it becomes even harder. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I would think about, you know, what my colleagues might think, what people who look at my byline on our website might think mm -hmm. um, about me and what I'm reporting on. And I felt I was worried that people wouldn't trust my reporting if they're only seeing that I'm talking to and about um, Muslims. So I, so I ended up, like, or especially early on, avoiding those stories and not not going after them and just pitching um your general run-of-the-mill stories mm -hmm. um and now that i've been in the industry for a little while and gained a little more confidence um I'm, I'm seeing that a little differently and i'm trying to to find a way to have those conversations and pitch those stories um and, and you know take ownership of of what i can bring to the table so what, what piece of advice would you give to someone who is trying to get into this career as a visible Muslim? I would say uh, do it. <laughs> really do it. I mean, um, this the doors are really opening um, and newsrooms are really looking for a wide variety of voices and experience. And so... Um, the fact that you come from this background is really um, is is really advantageous. You bring something uh, different and unique to the table. Um, so sort of become an asset. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, not not universally. It's not like yeah, um, yeah. Uh, it's, not, <laughs> it's it's not like every every organization is going to see it that way. And it's not like um, it's not like that's what's going to get you in the door. You still have to have yeah, really really. Um, strong credentials behind you and you have to have like kind of the skill and the talent to back it up. But um, I would say that I would just, this is really hard to kind of, you know, put into action, but just have the confidence in your voice and your experience and um, listen a lot to those around you, but also don't forget to speak up. Mm -hmm.
What's one thing you wish you would have known before you got into this career? I think, well, I think one thing I wish I would have known before I got into this career is, well, just that, that I should, um, that, that my voice and story has value and it, it um, brings a special kind of nuance to the work we do and to not shy away from pursuing those kinds of stories. The other thing that I really wish I would have known um, is um, just my worth as a, um, as a producer and reporter. I think a lot of people, um, this is it's a really hard job to get into. And it's also, especially if you're going into public media, the idea is, um, it's very altruistic work and you don't need to, you know, you're, you're just lucky to get the job. So don't worry about um, negotiating a salary or, or, or you know, mm -hmm. that, that is um, high. Uh, it's, it's public media and um, you're just lucky to have the job. So just take what you can get. But one of the things that I learned is that's absolutely wrong. You need to negotiate. You need to know what, what they're paying um, producers and reporters around the country and you need to negotiate really hard for um, a higher salary when you're walking in because um, one of the things I've seen in my in my experience just talking to other um, producers of color in the industry we often get paid a lot lower than mm -hmm. some of our peers and I think part of that is wow I just got a job and like that's you know, you, you, you take it, um, because you're excited to have it, but, and, but I, I would say, yeah, um, do what you can to find out what the going rate is in, mm -hmm. in the industry and, um, go for it. And I have a lot of resources right now. So if anyone <laughs> wants to know what they should get paid, uh, you can contact me and I will tell you. <laughs> so you suggest people talking to people who have already had that experience. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was just at a conference um, two weekends ago, and it was a public, it, well, it wasn't a public radio conference. It was an audio producers conference. And the session that, one of the sessions I attended was um, for people of color in the industry on how to talk about money. And um, one of the things coming out of that that I really learned about was um, the, you know, how we just need to be more open and frank with each other about what we're getting paid and um and you know that's the only way that we're going to start changing some of these like dark patterns that have been well established okay so <clears throat> sorry um What's the moment or the most interesting story that made you think, yes, I love journalism? Hmm. Before I became a journalist or while, you know, while I was. While you're a journalist. And there are so many. <laughs> um, I feel like even just Friday, I was having this conversation with um, a professor at Seattle University about voting. Um, so we have this series called Sound Cues, where uh, listeners will write in with questions and we try to answer them. And um, it's actually the premise of a new podcast that my station launched, but our show has been helping promote that, that podcast by answering some of those questions. And 
um, one of the questions that came in is why did Washington State go to vote by mail and how, um, you know, is that an effective way to get people to vote or not? And it might sound a little boring on its surface, but um, after having this conversation with um, this professor, I feel like I walked away understanding our democracy and and how voting works so much better. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really surprised at how much I learned from that conversation and how it really made me see this huge process that affects so many mm-hmm. of us and it's so vital and so important um, really differently. And I'm really excited to bring that to our listeners and um, help them answer this question. Um, it, it's things like um, we think of, we think Americans are, we think of the low voter turnout um, amongst Americans as some sort of sign of um, misinformation or people that they don't care or apathy. But a big part of it is one of the problems in America is we're sort of a super democracy. We vote on everything all the time. There are so many elections happening that uh, that's that's the problem. Um, we're asking people to vote too much. And so it sort of tunes people out. And I thought that was really interesting to hear that it's it's not necessarily that we should have this, um, we should lose our faith in the humanity here, but it's maybe something prob- that's a problem with the system uh, that is causing this low voter, voter turnout. Mm-hmm. Um, and how demanding is journalism as a, as a career? Uh, it's pretty demanding. <laughs> it really, um, you know, I have, for a reporter, they're going to have a completely different schedule than I have. Um, as a daily news show, we have this sort of facade of a regular schedule, which is our show happens at noon every day. So we, you know, start our day with an 8.30 meeting and we theoretically should end after the eight hours have clocked in. But um, because we're trying to fill an hour of programming a day with anywhere from three to five segments, um, we're constantly, my team and I are constantly thinking about what is happening. How do we, how do we talk about, and how do we talk about it? And how do we tell people about it? And how do we fill that hour? Um, so um, yeah, you're, you're constantly reading and consuming and looking at the world around you and thinking what is happening and, and, and how do I, how do we talk to people about it? Can it be hard sometimes trying to find those stories? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I think we get a little desensitized. Um, uh, there are so many stories that I feel like I've told a hundred times. Um, if I hear one more person talk about how Washington State needs an income tax, um, <laughs> to me that is just, I, I'm always hearing that. <laughs> and I'm always, um, that's always seems to be the answer to every question that we're posing. And so you get a little burnt out and you feel like, oh, I've, I've told every story. I've Uh, talked about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, There's nothing new or interesting or exciting in the world, but um, even even on a local show, there's just so much happening and there's so much we haven't uncovered. So I think it gets harder to find those stories. At some point, you have to start digging deeper. You have to start going to new places and you have to start talking to some more and more people that you don't often talk to. And um, sometimes those stories get harder to tell, but um, but I, but I don't think we'll ever run out of things to say and talk about. As a journalist, is it really hard to balance 
being unbiased. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting dilemma that's happening in newsrooms these days. Um, I was just actually listening to a conversation about um, about this idea of being unbiased and um, this argument of objectivity, um, especially in the Trump era that we're living in now. Um, there is a lot of pressure to stay objective because we're constantly being um, accused of not being objective. Um, and especially as, um, as someone who isn't a white man, um, which has for so long kind of been the, the, the standard of who is telling these stories, um, you are always having to prove uh, and go the extra mile of, of showing and proving that um, you you are objective and fair. Um, so there's that. There's it's a couple of things. On one hand, you yourself have to have to work a little harder to show that you're you're objective and you can tell a story without um, bias. But I think there's also a conversation happening within newsrooms mm -hmm. about what does it mean to be unbiased and objective. I think there's kind of a myth that there is such a thing as objectivity yeah. and being unbiased. I was hearing this really great conversation about, you know, when we talk about biases, so often people think of it as being about race or gender or religion. Mm -hmm. They don't think of it about being, uh, they don't think of it as being, do you have a degree? Do you, do you use rideshare? Do you use Airbnb? Do you, you know, all of these things, like, do you order off of Amazon? All of these things can create a bias within you. And so when we're, when we're looking at our newsroom and looking at who's biased, who's not biased, um, I think we need to broaden, I think we need to really like reckon with that conversation and, and broaden that conversation out to more than just mm -hmm. targeting the people of color or the women or the Muslims or the Jews or, you know, the, the, the minorities that we tend to look at. Mm -hmm. And usually not being biased is the uh, old school journalism way of doing things. The right. white man who <laughs> used to sit on the typewriter writing all these print stories. Um, so the, the world really is changing from that perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I think we have a challenge. Um, there's this old adage. I hope I don't mess it up, but it's, I, I've been here. I've been hearing it bandied around a lot, which is, um, a reporter, when it's um, raining outside, you don't just talk to person A and person B to get their statements. You look outside and see if it's actually raining. Mm -hmm. um, and then I heard someone who expanded on it and said, what we need to be doing is also look, you know, asking the question, why is it raining? Mm. Um, which is this idea that we should be looking at the um, systems that are in place in, in our um, countries and and questioning how things got the way they are, and if we're not if we're not telling those stories too, we're not we're not really telling the the true story of what's happening. That was another conversation that happened yeah. at that conference that I was at, <laughs> <laughs> looking at why this person is angry, why this group of people is doing what they're doing, why things are going on um, the yeah. way that they are. Absolutely. What kind of advice would you give to people who are coming into this career? One of the things I would say is um, I'd really recommend trying to um, 
really sharpen all the skills you're going to need to enter this field. So um, practice telling stories, looking at narrative, um, practice research, practice writing, practice audio editing, practice videography, um, just sharpen all those skills that you're, you're, you're going to need. And also, um, don't just focus on the field itself. Try to immerse yourself in another community or another area that you might be really interested in. If you, um, if you want to report on immigration, uh, spend time in immigrant communities. I mean, if you are, um, you know, a lot of us come from immigrant families and immigrant communities already. Um, spend time working with refugees. Um, spend time um, trying to build connections to communities that you don't come from. Um, read as much as possible. <laughs> Just read, read, read. Um, consume what you can. Listen to the great podcasts that are out there and watch the great shows that are out there and, um, you know, think about what they're doing and how you could do it differently. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then when you walk into the field, you, you already come with a deep understanding of what you want to do and mm -hmm. how you want to change it. Do you have to have a certain um, field of interest in this, uh, in this whole field? Cause there are a lot <laughs> of places that you can go. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, not necessarily. It's interesting. I feel like I'm very much a generalist. I can, I'm just so fascinated by everything that's happening. Um, and I can find, um, there are a lot of days where I just love doing stories about the environment, or I am really fascinated with stories about local city politics and, um, or, or a story about wildfires is really captivating me. And I want to, I just want to tell all the stories and, and about, um, you know, why wildfires are happening. Um, so you don't have to necessarily be uh, an expert in one one field or one area, but also if you are, that's really great too. I think um, sometimes um, you might think, oh, I want to become an environmentalist, and so I'm going to, you know, study environmental science, and I'm going to go into this field. Uh, but think about maybe. Um, what if you became an environmental journalist? And, and if you have um, a love of telling stories, you're a talented writer, or um, you, you are really interested in radio or TV, maybe take that interest you have and spin it into um, a, a career as a journalist. I, I talk about the environment because I think that's probably one of the most pressing issues of our time, <laughs> as, as we learned with that uh, UN climate report. Okay, so do you have any final thing that you wanna share with us? Let's see, I think um, I would just, I, th I really wanna echo what Riza said about pursuing your passions and not, um, not uh, bowing to the pressures that society and sometimes our parents put on us. And I don't say that to like not listen to your parents because you definitely should. <laughs> they have a lot of sage advice. But um, I think coming, uh, working in a career that is not traditionally uh, pursued by folks in our community, mm -hmm. um, it's not valued all the, often, um, and it's not always understood. I think 
it's so, so vital and important that more of us are in this field and not even just as a journalist, not even just as a news reporter, but even just as um, an influencer. And I'm not saying like we should be Instagram models or something, but just being <laughs> out there in the public and telling our stories and mm-hmm. um, making a presence and demanding space and demanding um, that our voices be heard. I think yes. that's so, so, so important. We can't complain that um, people aren't portraying us right if, you know, the best person to portray us is ourselves. Yeah. And um, so I would just really encourage people to follow follow their dreams and follow their talents, even though I know it'll be really, 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 really hard. <laughs> and um, <laughs> a lot of people will tell you, you shouldn't. Um, and you can still do this without compromising your values and compromising your um your dean Mm -hmm. um, and it's really important you do it thank you so much amina oh absolutely thank you it was lovely talking to you lovely talking to you too you were just listening to the you mentor talk show if you missed this or future shows you can always hear the replay on the you mentor website under prior talk shows and while you're there why not subscribe to our itunes podcast so you never miss another show If you want to reach out to the speakers from today's show or any of our previous shows to ask the professionals any questions you may have, visit our online platform at umojaoutreach.org slash unleashthefuture slash groups. Or just visit the UMentor website and hit the link for online platform. Be sure to tune in next week on Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for another panel of speakers and more stories. Thanks for listening to our panel today on YouTube Live.